one up, uh, but we're going to look at James for a few minutes this afternoon. <clears throat> James 2, if you want to turn there. Hebrews James. I wanted to do this afternoon just a bit of a study that I think will be, I hope will be, a counterbalance to what we're talking about in the morning and a clarification to our study in Galatians. What I want to do this afternoon is to look at the relationship between faith and works, especially with regards to justification. Or to say it another way, I want to try to help us correlate Paul with James. Uh, No doubt you have run across this concern, Uh, maybe a discussion with somebody in the past about the role of works in the life of a Christian, especially in light of this letter from James. So let's read this section that we have under consideration here, verses 14 through 26. And then I want to just try to give you some food for thought that will help you uh, as you try to continue to try to uh, harmonize these texts. James says in 2.14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or la- and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Whereas the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So you can see why my attention has been on this passage. We've been working through the doctrinal teaching from the book of Galatians and Romans in particular about justification by faith and the Reformation clarification of that in terms of the way Paul's using that statement is that we are justified by faith, what? Alone, by faith alone. And then we come to this verse, verse 24 of this text, which says, Quote, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so there's the rub, right? 
we, uh, we see on the surface an apparent contradiction here. And so I want to help you to try to work through how we should think about this, at least how I'm th- I think about it. I think this is, um, this is not a contradiction, but it is certainly a, uh, an, an apparent on the surface contradiction um, that is, it, it has the look of a contradiction about it uh, until you really dig into it. And, and here's what's most helpful to me. The, 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 the hardest verse in this text in terms of the way it sounds compared to the way that we phrase the doctrine of justification is verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But one of the biggest helps is to realize that James is not starting with verse 24, that he's spoken of 10 verses already. He's written along this line, building up to this in context. So it's that context that that has really helped me um, to, to try to make sense of what James is saying in terms of what Paul is saying. So When you do look at the context of these first ten verses, I think it becomes apparent that part of the apparent discrepancy between Paul and James is how they're using some of these key terms that they share, but they're using them in slightly different ways. I think we all realize that we can use words in different ways in different contexts. We talk about breaking a vase. We all know what that means. But then we talk about taking a break, or we talk about breaking news, and we mean different things. Even though we're using sort of the same word or the same form, uh, uh, different forms of the same word, we mean different things. And so in certain contexts, uh, even the same biblical writer will use a word one way and then use it in a slightly different way um, when he's addressing a different situation, Um, not to mention the fact that two different writers uh, may be doing the same thing uh, as well. So I, I think there are three key terms here that James is using in a slightly different way probably than what Paul is using it in Galatians chapter 3. So let me just go through these three and then we'll draw it to a conclusion uh, by looking at the example that he gives specifically with regard to Abraham. All right, so the first key term is the term faith. Faith. What do we mean when we talk about faith? Well, surprisingly, we can mean several different things. Um, Now, in our language, we typically use faith to refer to belief or trust. We're saved through faith in Christ, right? But we can also use the term faith to talk about someone's religion or their profession of belief. Um, We say someone is of, quote, of the Mormon faith or something like that. And I think that's probably a little closer to the way that the term is used here in context. I want you to take note that James is speaking about a, an outward profession of belief even to the exclusion of that inner realities being evidenced by works. Notice several things in the context. Take a look at verse 14, and you might underline these or at least remember them if, uh, in order to be able to to uh, explain this text uh, to someone who might ask you about it. Verse 14, James is speaking about someone who says that he has faith, right? Notice he says he has faith, 
Does he really have saving faith? Well, that's a whole different story. But he does say, he does confess a, a, a faith, but he does not have works. Notice also in verse 15, what he, he says one thing, but he doesn't, his, his actions are, are different. And this is not the first time James has talked this way. Back in chapter 1, James talked about a person who, quote, seems to be religious, but he does not bridle his tongue. So in the, in the first place, when James is talking about faith, we have to say that there is a kind of faith that's just a confession that doesn't have um, an action that corresponds to it. But note also that the faith that is spoken of by James, when he does talk directly about faith, somebody who actually has faith, he's talking about a specific kind of faith. All right, And the key verse for this is verse 14 as well. Take notice of verse 14 again when he said the word faith there has a definite article in front of it. Translated in our Bible, in the King James, I mean in the ESV Bible here rather, as I think it's that faith. Is that what it says? That faith. Uh, can that faith save him? Some Bibles have such. Can such faith save him? So it's not faith uh, in general that he's talking about but a specific kind of faith. So what kinds of faith are there? Uh, what kinds of belief are out there? Well, you could say that there's a, on in one hand, a kind of purely intellectual faith that knows certain things that are facts and in some sense gives assent to those things mentally. But there's no real deep conviction about those things. They haven't been gripped by the reality of those things. This kind of faith doesn't even reach the level of demon faith that's described in verse 19. Take a look at verse 19. Chapter 2, 19. Even the devils, or even the demons, uh, he says, believe that God is one, and that causes them to what? To shudder. At least it has some kind of effect upon them, some kind of emotional impact with you, uh, with certain people, he says, uh, it doesn't even seem to do that. There is a kind of purely intellectual faith. On the other hand, there's a kind of a purely emotional faith, isn't there? An emotional um, response to the gospel that sometimes you think of when you think of somebody who has a what they used to call a foxhole conversion. Uh, he's down there in the trenches. He's getting shot at. He thinks he's going to die, and he gives his life to Jesus, right? Jesus, save me, and I'll live for you, right? And by God's grace, sometimes that's true faith, but in, on other, in other cases, it proves not to be a, a real saving attachment to Christ, but a mere emotional response to the circumstances. Perhaps this would be characteristic of somebody who is gives his life to Christ merely out of a fear of hell alone without any real saving interest in Christ. So there is a kind of intellectual assent, there's a kind of an emotional response, but there is then a saving faith that involves both uh, not only the mind understanding the gospel, 
but the emotions, the conviction that those things are true, the being gripped by the reality of those things, and the will, a decision to trust and rely on the gospel and on the Lord Jesus Christ, that are those things are all characteristic of true saving faith. And, and besides that, what else do we know about true saving faith? It perseveres, right? It endures. It's not short-lived. A person who's truly saved continues to believe in Christ all the days of his life. Jesus illustrated this, I think, most perfectly in the parable of the soils. We all know that parable. And the one place where the seed fell on shallow ground and there was bedrock underneath and the seed quickly sprang up, uh, but when the sun come, came out, it, uh, it withered or, and, and, it, and it died away because it had no root. And Jesus said, this is the person who responds with joy. All of the Gospels in, include this emotional element that Jesus referred to. This is a person who has an emotional response. He springs up. He's not unresponsive to the Word. There's a sort of faith there, but he, but he dies away quickly. The uh, 1689 London Confession of Faith refers to quote-unquote temporary believers. Temporary believers. I don't know if you've ever heard that terminology before. Or, or you know, at first glance, it sounds almost like that's got to be wrong. How could you call somebody a believer, but it's only temporary? Are they saying you can lose your salvation? You can be one of God's elect and then not be um, regenerated and then die again? No, this is not what they're saying. What they're getting at is that there is a kind of faith, a kind of belief that's not a saving attachment to Christ. We may not be used to calling these kinds of responses faith, but the Bible actually sometimes does. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. John 2. John 2.23, I'll put it on the screen too. Jesus it says when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many, notice the terminology that John uses, many believed in his name. They believed when they saw the signs that he was doing. But now notice what it says. But Jesus did, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Here are people who, quote-unquote, gave themselves to Christ, but Christ did not give Himself to them. They, quote-unquote, believed in Him, but their belief was not the kind of saving belief that was a true um, attachment to Christ. Here's another example in John 8.31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, so again, John's using the language of belief or faith, but Jesus says to them, if you abide in my word, if that's the same uh, idea that we read about this morning, right? If you continue, if you continue in my word, then are you, what? Truly my disciples. In other words, I think there were, it was apparent to Jesus that there were a lot of be- quote-unquote believers who were not true believers. There were a lot of disciples who were not true disciples. And of course, some of them did believe in him and continued to follow him, but there were times when he spoke some really hard truths to them, 
And John 6 verse 66 says that at one of those occasions, after he had said things like that to them, that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They were temporary believers, right? It was a temporary attachment that was not a true saving faith. All of these kinds of responses are still sometimes called faith in the Bible, but they must be distinguished from true saving faith. That is the kind of faith that Paul has in mind when he talks about being justified by faith. Okay, so James is talking about a specific kind of faith um, in in the context of, of where he's going here. And he's differentiating that from true saving faith. Now, second term that I think is helpful to examine, and that's the term works. James says, not saved by faith alone, but justified by works as well. Um, Paul says it's not by works, not by works of the law. If you depend on works, you're under a curse. You depend on the law. And I think there are probably slightly different nuances to uh, their use of this term. In Paul... He's arguing against false teachers and false gospel there in Galatia. And when he uses the term works, he seems to have in mind primarily the ceremonial rites of the Jewish faith, that is circumcision, the dietary laws, the holy days, and the entirety of the law in terms of external conformity to the law. So that's what all these people were proud of, right? It was not true that all of these people who were boasting in the law were truly law keepers in any sense. His point was, you you haven't kept the law at all because you didn't keep it by faith in Christ. And and so there was, though, they did have something to be proud of in that they did have a very robust external conformity to the law. And that seems to be what Paul has primarily in mind. James here, James is talking here when he talks about works, about acts of love that flow from genuine faith. That is the fruit of saving faith. In chapter 1, verse 26, guarding your tongue. In chapter 1, verse 27, visiting the fatherless and the widow. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, resisting prejudice that comes by judging based on outward appearances. In chapter 2, verse 8, loving your neighbor as yourself. These acts of genuine um, righteousness in as much as they spring from faith. So I think they're looking at works in slightly different ways. Um, Paul focusing on those external conformities. James speaking of more... Um, responses that come from a root of faith. And then finally, they, they seem to talk about justification in slightly different ways. Here's what I mean. Uh, you may remember this from reading in Romans a couple of weeks ago and even in Galatians. Paul seems to view justification to look at it primarily from God's viewpoint. That is, he's talking about how is it that a person is justified in the sight of God? How is a person declared righteous by God Himself? 
And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, I want to show you two places, one in Galatians, one in Romans, where he sort of tips us off that this is where he's coming from. This is his viewpoint. In Galatians chapter 3, he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. You might try to justify yourself. You might try to you know, put on a good show in front of other people, but before God, you're not going to be pronounced righteous except uh, by faith. And in Romans chapter 4, he makes it even more explicit, I think. In Romans 4.2, he's talking about Abraham now. He says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Right, See, so he's talking about this person's standing before God. Before God, in order to be declared righteous by him, there can be no reliance on works or reliance on your conformity to the law, but only on Christ and Christ alone. On the other hand, when James uses the word justify, he seems to be viewing justification primarily from man's vantage point. So let me show you. Look at verse 14 in the text. 14, 16, 18. Nice even verses here. 14, someone says that he has faith. Well, how do you know that's true, right? Talk is cheap. So, he's going to be justified. Verse 16, he says, what good is it? What good is his claim to faith if he doesn't help a brother in need? Again, you can see he's looking at everything here so far from a manward viewpoint. Verse 18, same thing. This person has said he has faith. This other person says, show me your faith. Show me. Do you? How can I see what's in your heart? I can only see your faith by its effects. It's still faith in, alone in Christ that, that saves, but faith is justified by its actions. The issue for James, in other words, is not how a person is justified before God, but rather how do men see that you are a justified person. A man cannot see the heart, he only sees the outward evidences of faith. And I think that's what James is dealing with. These good works as evidence of saving faith. So in the light of the context and the way they're using the terms, I think that goes a long way, I would say at the beginning, to understanding how they seem to be saying on the surface opposite things. They're really coming at the same truths from different angles. Now, let's look then uh, specifically at the example of Abraham for the last few minutes. Starting in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son on the altar? That's his question. Remember, all through here, he's been talking about people who say they have faith. They have a certain kind of belief. The question is, how is that? How do we know that that person has faith? Uh, they, how can their faith be justified before men? He's getting to the idea of how is Abraham justified before men? How is he? How do we know that Abraham really is a man of faith? And he says, "You see it. You see that Abraham's a man of faith when he is willing to offer his son on the altar." You might want to take note that that 
is uh, a story that's told to us in Genesis chapter... That might have a little reference in your Bible or something. Yeah, it's Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. If you don't have a note in the in your Bible, I would make a note there. It's helpful to have. In other words, Paul is re- or James is referencing an event that takes place seven chapters, some thirty years after the events recorded in, Acts, in, in Genesis 15, where Abraham is counted righteous for believing God. And he's doing nothing. In chapter 15, Abraham's standing there under the stars, doing nothing, just looking up and believing. And it is on the basis of faith, faith alone in God and God's promise. It is on the basis of faith that he is declared righteous by God. God knew and saw Abraham's heart and so justified him by faith. But on the other hand, Abraham's offering of his son proved or testified to or demonstrated or gave evidence or, to use James's term, justified Abraham's supposed faith. In contrast to the people that he's talking about all through this chapter who say they have faith, who appear to have a certain kind of faith, but you really have to wonder whether it's true saving faith. Abraham's faith was vindicated. It was justified. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 says that God tested Abraham. That is, God's intent was to prove the reality of Abraham's faith. Any person can say, James says, any person can say he has faith, but Abraham proves it. James's point is not that Abraham's work saved him, but that they... His works proved and testified to the faith that he already had. Sort of like uh, in James chapter 1, James says that blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Okay, He's tested, his faith is tested. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And what James doesn't mean is that life is his reward for a certain level of obedience in his trials, but rather that his trials are just that. They're trials. They're tests of the reality of his faith. Is it really saving faith? Is it temporary faith or is it saving faith? Is it intellectual or emotional response only or is it saving faith? When you put him under the test, when, when, his, when, when his dog dies and he loses his house and his kid gets cancer and everything goes bad and he still says, Lord, my only hope is you, then you know that there's a man with saving faith. right? Um, so this is a test. It's a proving. It's a demonstrating of what is already a reality. When you take um, something that's supposed to be gold, keys are never gold, but take something that's supposed to be gold and you take it to uh, a jeweler or somebody, he's going to test it, right, to see whether it's gold. And he puts some acid on there. I don't know how they do the test, but they do some sort of test to see what kind of metal that is. He's not making that metal into gold. He's demonstrating that it is gold by testing. This is exactly the term that God uses in Genesis chapter 22, which is what James cites here. God set out to make a public display of the faith that was in Abraham's heart. And so verse 22 of the text here says, You see, 
that faith was active along with his works and that faith was completed by his works. And the word here to take note of is the word active. Faith was active. You know what the root of that word is? Work. Faith was working. Faith was working with his works. His faith worked, in other words, to justify him. One commentator said that the writer here, James, is not pleading for faith plus works, but faith that works, right? That's really what he's saying. His faith worked with his works. His faith worked out in his work of offering his son. He was not justified by faith and works, but by faith that works. Calvin said, faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. Right? It always is accompanied by the other graces of salvation. What are the graces of salvation? Perseverance, good works, sanctification. All of these come by a living attachment to Jesus Christ. They're all part of union with Christ. In the very beginning, all we have is faith. And on that basis of faith and faith alone, we're justified. Why? So that God can show that it's not on the basis of all those other things, it's on the basis of His Son that you're justified. God is intent to glorify His Son. That's why faith is the one grace that is identified as the basis for justification. But the other graces accompany it. You can't get half of God's salvation or one-eighth of it. Say, I'll take just the, just the faith part, please, but not the works part. No, if God saves you, He saves you altogether. And He's going to give you faith and cause you to persevere and do good works that flow from faith and stay in the faith all the way to the end. So you see, James says, his faith was at work. He also says his faith was completed by his works, which is a sort of troublesome word when you sit there and start to ponder that minute, right? You, you say, does that mean that his faith alone was insufficient ground for justification before God? His faith is completed by his works. And I, and I ran across a very similar construction in, in, in Greek here over in, in uh, 1 John chapter 4 that I thought was very helpful to me. 1 John 4.12. Uh, you might write that by verse 22. His faith was completed by his works. 1 John 4.12 says this. If we love one another, now get what he's talking about. We're, we love each other as Christians. If that's true, then God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What does John mean? God's love is perfected when we love one another. Does he mean that God's love is somehow inadequate or faulty without our love for each other? By no means, right? None of us would say that. God's love is perfect in and of itself. Rather, what, what does he mean? He must mean this, that God's love is made manifest. It's brought to its intended expression when we love each other with the love that he's pouring out through us, right? God's love is completed as we 
as he loves his people through us. And and yet, God's love is absolutely sufficient in itself. In this way, um, we say that faith itself is not deficient in any way, but it is made manifest. It's given expression by Abraham's works and by ours. I think that is an incredibly helpful parallel. And it's in that way that I think that we understand as well verse 23, where uh, James says that the scripture was fulfilled when Abraham offered his son. The scripture was fulfilled that says, and now he's going to reference back to chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now we know that the word fulfilled here can mean something that was predicted and now has come to pass. But that would be sort of putting James in contradiction to Paul, who says that Abraham was justified back in Genesis 15. So I think fulfilled here means what it can also mean in many texts, that something is filled up, that it's made full, that it's complete. It's kind of a parallel to the word completed in verse 22. In other words, Abraham's act of obedience his act of obedience and offering his son to God was an outward manifestation or an expression of the reality that he had already been pronounced by God in chapter 15 to to possess, and that is a righteousness that was given to him uh, that was based on his faith. And so that finally brings us then to the conclusion, verse 24, which is where we started. Um, You see that a person is justified by works not by uh, excuse me a person is justified by works and not by faith alone what does that mean then well i think in context of all that we've read so far what it means is something like this a person is justified visibly publicly not just before god He's justified by works, not by mere conformity to the law as a means of self-justification, but by the obedience that arises from faith. He's justified before men, invisibly, publicly justified by his works, and not by faith alone. That is, not by a certain kind of faith that is alone, a bare profession or a mere intellectual assent or emotional response that is without any real saving attachment to Christ and any other graces that come with a saving attachment to Christ. So that, I think, is, is, is a helpful um, way of seeing not just that these two mesh, but that they are absolutely essential things for us to understand if we're really going to understand saving faith. Both sides, both James and Paul, what they have to say. Otherwise, honestly, you're going to come out with a truncated view of faith, only taking cherry-picking what the Bible says. And, uh, and, that, and honestly, that kind of truncated view of faith has led to all kinds of wrong presentations of the gospel that are still going on today, right now, in churches around Houston. So we must insist with Paul that no one can rely on his own religious experience uh, or performance, rather, in order to be justified. But on the other hand, we must 
insist with James that anyone who makes a profession of faith that is not accompanied with any other fruit of salvation, namely a changed life, good works, deeds that flow out of a heart of faith that are in keeping with repentance, that this person's faith is, is, is spurious. That we should give no easy assurance to someone just because he prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or joined a church or makes a confession of faith or even has a kind of seeming emotional love for Jesus. Those are not proof positive that a person is really the Lord's. This is what James helps us with. Helps to guard against that kind of sort of uh, plucking faith out as a grace by itself. And that kind of um, that kind of corrective is needed. Uh, as much as anything in the church today. One writer said it this way, um, Such theological harmonization is absolutely necessary, but it also should not lead us to ignore the important contribution made by either Paul or by James. When faced with legalism, the attempt to base salvation on human works, Paul needs to be heard as he was powerfully at the time of the Reformation. When faced with quietism, the attitude that dismisses works as unnecessary for Christians, James needs to be heard, as he was equally powerfully in the time of the Wesleys. There is, um, there is a holiness, there is a, there is a life that corresponds to faith. Of course, you know this, I know that flows out of faith, that's a part of the gift of salvation that James is highlighting that is so important for us to keep in mind. So may Paul encourage us to look to Christ alone for our, our, our hope, and he is absolutely right. And may James sober us that there is such a thing as a faith that does not save. May God's Word have its full and proper effect on our lives. Amen.